following aviation podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 151, How One Pilot Changed the Approach Minimums in Brazil, coming up in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Newville, Eric Crump, Larry Overstreet, Russ Rosleski, Tom Frick, Rick Felton, and Carl Valeri. Well, folks, welcome to the Stuck Mike Avcast. This is actually our first episode after Air Venture, and uh, it's the first time we've all been able to get together, or most of us have been able to get together after Air Venture. Uh, joining us uh, as far as co-hosts this evening are uh, Rick Felty, Russ Rosleski, Tom Frick, and Larry Overstreet. Uh, co-hosts, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Good evening, everybody. Thanks, Carl. <laughs> and uh, one of the things that I think was really cool is listening to you guys when you were over there in AirVenture, following you guys, too, on Facebook. I really, uh, that last episode we did with all the interviews was really cool. Uh, I guess one of the things we should do is just quickly say, hey, how was it out there, guys? And, and uh, did you all have some fun? How could um, you go I to Oshkosh and not have that, Carl? <laughs> Come on. Well, you exactly. wouldn't know about that, of course. No, no, and I apologize. Yeah. I, I said I was going to be there, but uh, something happened in my life personally, which kind of came up, and I didn't quite expect it. So I uh, just had to – we moved, and uh, it took a little longer than I expected. But I am here transmitting from Lakeland. But, uh, Russ, you actually were able to bang out a bunch of interviews. You were out there just, just hopping them out. Uh, you, you, you must have seen everything at AirVenture, didn't you? Well, not quite everything, no. And uh, <laughs> actually, though, as you know, I, I kind of I didn't I didn't do it full time like I do it uh, at Sun and Fun. But uh, we certainly did have some uh, some good interviews, some good conversation that we all heard on that last episode. Yeah, yeah, that was cool. And uh, and I know Larry always has a blast. And being close to there, I'm I'm so jealous that you are so close to. Uh, I did have uh, a great time, and I got to hang out with you know a couple of other people here, um, uh, including uh, Russ and Tom. So. Uh, that was that was a blast, and of course we had to talk about you a little bit, Carl, just so you know you know you're loved. Yes, well, thank you. And I saw the picture with you and David Abbey, one of our listeners, uh, and that was pretty cool. Yeah, they, uh, he came by and, and visited, said hello, and uh, also uh, another we, one of our listeners. You know, we actually, Carl, just real quick here, we we actually had many vi- listeners stop us. Too many to name, but m- many listeners stop us uh, just. Uh, running around at different events that we were at and so forth. For the first time, I, I got somebody that walked up and said, are you Larry Overstreet? And I said, yeah. And they said, I thought that was your voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's cool. That's so, awesome. Yeah. So thanks to all the listeners who you know took the time to stop and say hello. We sure appreciate you. We're, we're glad that you, you know take the time to um, just reach out and say hi. Yeah, that was terrific. And I know, Tom, you you saw quite a few listeners uh, at the show because you were uh, working a booth, I think. I was, and and it was. I, I had the same experience as Larry. I had somebody come up and, and actually recognize my voice, and that that was kind of cool, you know. So we do. We have lots of uh, listeners out there. I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, and we appreciate everybody. Let's do the pre-flight. 
Uh, again, hopefully uh, I'll see everybody there at Airvention next year. But here's one thing we are going to start doing is uh, start mentioning places that are, you know, co-hosts and uh, some of the other guest hosts that we have on are, are going to. And then we're going to actually have some of those folks do some recording at those different shows. As a matter of fact, we do have one announcement where I think one of our co-hosts will be Russ. Uh, so coming up, this is uh, September 1st, this comes out. There's an event uh, near you that you are going to attend. Tell us a little bit about that event and what it is. Yeah, that's right, Carl. Um, if you are listening to this on September 1st, the day it comes out, which I'm sure all of our listeners immediately <laughs> downloaded, of course, right? <laughs> but the next weekend on September 8th and 9th is one of the uh, the regional AOPA fly-ins that they started a couple years ago and is coming to Norman, Oklahoma. Well, Norman is really close to Oklahoma City where I live, so I will definitely be attending. So if you are from Oklahoma or Texas or Kansas or, or Arkansas or any of the other surrounding states and you plan to uh, attend the, the AOPA fly-in in Norman, Oklahoma, send me a note and uh, maybe we can meet up or something. That'd be great. Uh, certainly should be a fun event. Awesome. And uh, we have uh, another co-host from our other show and Aviation Careers who hopefully will come by and say hello. And I, hey, I may, you never know. I might show up. I have a lot of time off that month uh, if the wife will let me go. And of course, I'll show up in, in Oklahoma and not Air Venture. That just doesn't make any sense to me. It's but, fine uh, with us. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Air Venture, I, I really, uh, like I said, I can't tell you how many people wrote me and, and said, you know, it was so great to meet you guys out there. And also, uh, it was so much fun. And it was just a, it's it's just a great place to to interact with all these different aviators and, and people that have you know such a passion for aviation and everything else in life. Uh, and there's some really interesting things that, that are there that you can do and seminars, et cetera. And there's so much to learn and so much camaraderie. And, and I'm like I said, I'm jealous. And, and next year, I'd, uh, my wife said, we're definitely taking that week off. We're not going to be in the middle of buying a house, so you're going to be there. Uh, but uh, anyway, moving on here, uh, don't forget AOPA Regional Fly-In, 8th and 9th. We'll have a link in the podcast. Also, of course, you can go to AOPA and find the other ones that are out out there. Uh, I will be at uh, the one that's coming up in, gosh, I forget when it is, November. That's in Tampa, so I'll definitely uh, be able to meet you folks there. I think it's, maybe it's October. Don't quote me on that. Take a look at their website. Uh, before we get started, quick, uh, our sponsors. Actually, our sponsor is Aviation Careers Podcast. Uh, coaching, scholarships, and also information about different careers in aviation. Go to aviationcareerspodcast.com. Uh, the other thing, too, I'd like you to do is, uh, well, uh, take a look at sponsorship of uh, Stuck Mike Avcast. We, uh, it's, uh, that's how we are able to make these recordings as our sponsors. And uh, for those of you interested, just shoot me an email. Uh, you can just send it to my personal email or just on the contact page here. So we get about 5,000 downloads per week, about 20,000 per month, and uh, it is a great place to, to reach out to some of those general aviation folks out there. Now entering cruise flight. We are have a really interesting guest, somebody who I'm so excited to have on the show today, and uh, he, he's a special guest. His name's Arnold Peeper. Arnold is an avid aviator. He's an actually an established information technology executive, and he's in flight standards on the Embraer 190, 195, and Lineage 1000. Uh, he's joining us from Brazil, and I hope I say it right. India, Tuba, Brazil. Did I say that right, Arnold? And welcome. <laughs> Close enough. Thank you very much, Carl. It's great to be here. I'm honored. <laughs> he's, he's very gracious in saying it's close enough. But in Diatuba. Yeah. In Diatuba. Okay. All right. I, 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 I killed that one. That's okay. Uh, we... It, <laughs> 
you know, Arnold and I have, have a, a very similar interest. We're, we're both in the airlines, and we, we love to fly uh, small airplanes. We love aviation in general, and uh, very technical, and he's into IT. But he's been able to actually uh, bridge that gap between uh, technology and aviation and is uh, someone who uh, helps people learn how to fly the Embraer. But he's also done something really cool. He's been able to change the approach minimums in Brazil. But let's go back a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about GA. Um, general aviation in the United States, and I'd like to get a feel because most of our audience, uh, you know, 89% are here in the United States. They, they don't understand sometimes what it's like to fly outside the U.S. You have had an experience both in the United States and also in Brazil flying. And uh, was wondering, maybe you could speak a little towards the differences as far as strictly general aviation and going out and to fly a 172. What, what are the differences between the U.S. and Brazil? Well, that's a very broad question. Uh, there are so many differences. Uh, in terms of regulation, probably the, the major difference between the U.S. and Brazil is that we fly Q&E here when we are flying en route. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so we only use um, uh, Q&H, the uh, regular altimeter setting, local altimeter setting, when we're shooting approaches or when we're joining the local traffic pattern. Interesting. So we ref we refer to flight levels uh, as low as uh, four zero, forty five, fifty, and so on. <laughs> wow, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. How about renting airplanes? Um, in Brazil, there are very few places where you can do that, and it's typically um, only allowed for people who are members of uh, uh, flying clubs. Typically, uh, not too many flying clubs allow you to rent a plane and actually. Uh, go, go cross country. You can normally just rent an aircraft and fly locally. So you can take your girlfriend or your family, but uh, it's typically just uh, local flying only. Um, yeah, about 20 years ago, there was a, a big flying club in Sao Paulo, of course, Sao Paulo being the largest city in the country, where you could rent uh, from among, I think it was about 20 aircraft, uh, mostly archers and arrows. Uh, and go cross country, but they stopped doing that for a while now. Interesting. So it's it's not uh, there's not as much recreational flying, obviously, in Brazil as there is in the U.S. Not as much. Uh, also, uh, the the regulatory authorities here they they made uh, general aviation a little bit uh, complex from all the uh, you know the paperwork and uh, uh, the red tape that typically surrounds this type of activities and. Um, and uh, the, I guess the public that would be doing uh, recreational flying have all moved over to, uh, uh, they call them ultralights. Uh, uh, I guess uh, they're similar to what uh, you guys call sport light aircraft. Mm -hmm. um, that, that has grown tremendously in Brazil over the last 20 years. Fascinating. You know, it's yeah. interesting. They're, they're, we're talking in the United States about air traffic control. I don't want to get too much on the politics of it, but uh, they, it seems like every administration that comes out, a uh, new president, always talks about privatizing the air traffic control system, etc. Um, is your air traffic control, it's all run by the government or is it privatized? Yes, yes, okay. it's run by, by the government. It's actually run by the military. In the military, okay. The, the air traffic control, yes. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So it's a little bit of environment uh, difference and uh, just flying around uh, recreationally. Also, I think another difference is the cost is a little bit higher 
Um, yes. And I'm not sure how your system's set up. Do you pay for the airspace as you use it, or is it uh, is it free? We do. Oh, you do. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have the infamous uh, user fees here. Ah. All over. We have landing fees. We have uh, airspace use fees, and then uh, radio fees, and uh, I don't know what. All, all the different fees are, but uh, it's it's typically very expensive. If you if you own a private aircraft, you'll typically spend. Uh, if you fly every weekend, you probably spend uh, any, anywhere between five hundred and one thousand uh, dollars just uh, just for the cost of the flying itself, without taking into consideration the gas that you might just spend. Wow! Uh, just in user fees, yeah. Well, <laughs> so that's they made it. That's kind of scary, I tell you, especially yeah. now that we're talking about user fees, and uh, that's just an example there, and, and that's kind of an extreme example. Gosh, I hope that doesn't happen here in the U.S. because uh, mm-hmm. that would that would squash general aviation, uh, and I'm sure there was a lot of talk of that at AeroVenture about uh, what the the discussions about user fees and this new system that they're talking about. So that's fascinating. Um, but yeah. now, if you if that was so expensive there, then Say people like yourself want to go out and become an airline pilot. You have to mm-hmm. you have to go out and spend time in an airplane and build hours. Do they go to other countries and 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 what did you do? Well, um, there there's a certain percentage of pilots who will go get their license in places like the United States. Uh, it's probably the the major country where people go to get their licenses. But back when I started, remember I started in the 1980s, so I. <laughs> I have a few years as well. Um, and when I started, aviation wasn't uh, nearly as expensive as it is today. I started flying in a Piper J3, and back then uh, we didn't have user fees. Well, actually, maybe there were user, user fees, but uh, the flying clubs were exempt from uh, regular user fees. Uh, we could pretty much fly for free, uh, uh, you know, all throughout the country. Um, and... Uh, I'm I'm not sure if the flight flight schools today still have that uh, privilege. I don't believe so because the flying clubs is uh, the thing that sort of uh, got extinguished over this past uh, 20 or 30 years. Um, and uh, commercial uh, flight schools are the ones that are basically running running the um, general aviation training these days. And I'm not sure they have the same uh, exemption. I don't think they they do actually. Interesting, interesting. So that's yeah. uh, that's another reason we see so many uh, students here in the United States from places like Brazil and all over the world because uh-huh. uh, even uh, even though it seems expensive to us, it's still a lot cheaper. It is, yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> but you you did a little bit of flying in the United States, did you not? Yes, I, I did. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, I moved to the United States in 1999. I, I already had all my licenses when I when I moved there. Uh, of course, I was in a different. Uh, in a different professional career uh, in IT, basically. So I flew um, recreationally on the weekends, uh, initially in California, where I moved, and then later on in uh, northern Florida. Um, what uh, my, my most challenging thing about flying in the United States uh, was probably getting used to this thing with flight levels not being used and referring to altitudes. <laughs> I would normally say, you know, I'm at... Uh, Flight level four or five, and the controllers would sort of, uh, you know, uh, laugh at me. <laughs> They'll get it though. 
<laughs> so it, it's funny because you know you that happens. You know, I, I fly to some countries where you know you do change it to flight levels at six thousand feet or at, mm-hmm. at six zero, mm-hmm. or uh, and you transition to you say Q and E, Q and H, and you know mm-hmm. standard. In other words, you set it to two nine nine two. In the United States, we do that at eighteen thousand feet is where we right. transition. Uh, there, there is no other place that I know in the U.S. Uh, mainland that that's different uh, from that. But uh, all these other places you go to, it's, it can be like a lot of times it's 6,000 feet or, mm-hmm. you know, flight level, you know, 60 and flight level 7. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting and much, much different uh, way of going about things. And uh, so there's, yes. there's one, one major change. And uh, what's interesting, too, is that these other countries, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, what you did to change some things on approaches. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, but one of the things that you operate under is uh, different rules. Every country has their own rules, and they, they try to, mm-hmm. to you know, coordinate with these you know, ICAO standards and uh, these operating rules are called PANSOPs. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, just basically you know, the air traffic control system, air navigation system is under that PANSOP rules, and they're really for instrument approaches and, and departures, mm-hmm. et cetera. And uh, when we say PANSOPs, that's, that's actually underneath ICAO, and they're the, the, the regulating material is, is around that, is around the PANSOPs. And it varies, though. Interestingly enough, you think everything's the same, but it does vary from country to country. It does. And that was mm-hmm. something that really I had to get used to when I started flying to these different areas. And I'm like, well, I'll just have to study PANSOPs. Well, well, yeah, but it doesn't matter because if you go to one country, it's different than another country. And if you're in three different countries in one day, all of a sudden they're all different. You really need to dig in and, and learn the rules for each specific country. And uh, very true. And that that's something that's fascinating. So for people that are actually thinking about, and and honestly, we're not that far away. You know, we can take one of our general aviation aircraft and go to these countries, and we can actually you know have those issues that we need to understand what the differences are. So uh, not that this. Mm-hmm. Is going to really be a, a whole conversation, but pans ops. But there's there's some things that are much different within Brazil. That uh, and one of those things is uh, those approach minimums. In the United States, we talk about having a visibility minimum, but in Brazil, they actually have ceilings, don't they? Well, not anymore. They do. But <laughs> <laughs> they used to. <laughs> they they used to. So and and one of the main reasons that we we brought you here today is to talk about that. There's a lot of instrument. Uh, folks out there and people that are training to, to get their instrument ratings that are listening and folks that are advanced pilots and uh, and love all this technical technology but remember that mm-hmm. a, a lot of countries I think there's over 50 of them that still have them in their minimums a definition of a ceiling not just a visibility I think it's around 50 is that correct well it's actually um, what what I showed in my research is that most of the countries in the world were already uh, uh, using the same standards as the United States, uh, meaning mostly the visibility and our RVR. And um, in my research, I found 10 other countries uh, besides Brazil that were still using, uh, I guess, the old way of doing these things, gotcha. which means the uh, 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 using the minimum ceiling as well as the minimum descent altitude and the, the descent altitude. Right, right. Or the decision altitude, I should say. Gotcha. You know, in, in the U.S., you know, we talk about that. We're flying in an ILS and we have a decision altitude or a non-precision. We have a, an MDA. And uh, so that's that's actually where we make a decision at that decision altitude, whether to continue on. But 
what we're talking about is something different, right? In this whole ceiling, yes. it's not okay. So, so what is the difference between that, like that decision altitude, and the ceiling that you're talking about? Uh-huh. So basically, to make that um, a little more clear, we probably need to go back a little bit in history, and um, and I say a little bit, a little bit, sort of. Uh, tongue-in-cheek because I'm talking about the 1960s here um, <laughs> when the, the FAA decided to uh, to change. Uh, so, so, so let me start by saying how they used to do these things. Okay. Yeah. Uh, instrument approaches uh, typically had a minimum ceiling requirement. Um, if the weather was uh, above that minimum ceiling, you were good to go. You could shoot the approach and sure enough, you would land. It was as simple as that. The problem is that the visibility, the uh, I guess the uh, what you could see out the windshield when you were uh, doing the approach wasn't necessarily expressed by the ceiling numbers that that uh, the airport would report. So the airport would report, let's say, a thousand foot ceiling, but you would see uh, the runway from let's say fifteen hundred feet um, because you were looking. Uh, in between the clouds, uh, depending on the cloud cover you have, um, you could see the the runway from a much higher altitude than the than the ceiling that the airport was reported was reporting, um, and this is uh, what led probably the airlines. I, I don't know how this this happened uh, in actuality, but of course I, I presume the airlines probably press the authorities a little bit about that, they would say, hey, this guy's reporting 500-foot ceiling on this airport, but I could see the runway as far as far out as 800-foot uh, from eight, from uh, an 800-foot standpoint, and I could see the runway pretty well. Um, so this is when they decided to to change the, uh, the way to do this a little bit, and they instituted the minimum descent altitude. Um, uh, and or the decision altitude if it's a precision approach. And um, in this way, it doesn't really matter what the ceiling is doing. Uh, you can always go as low as the minimum descent altitude if it's a non-precision or a decision altitude if it's a precision approach. You, you can always go to that altitude. Uh, now, in order to see the runway, you have to have a certain visibility for when you reach that point um, and this is uh, the new, let's say, this is what became the new standard, the visibility. Uh, and the ceiling pretty much was ignored from that point on. So, so what, what is, just back up a little bit, what's the problem with having that visibility, or excuse me, that ceiling, having that ceiling in there? Uh, and why is that such an issue? If Because uh, uh, we're trying to define that problem, you know, who cares if it's mm-hmm. a ceiling of 500 feet? Exactly. Uh, the the problem is is exactly the uh, the fact that uh, if you let's say you have uh, broken clouds, uh, broken broken clouds, uh, will t- even even if there's a 500 foot uh, cloud base above the airport where the weatherman is taking that measurement, mm-hmm. um, this doesn't necessarily reflect what uh, what the pilot is seeing out the windshield when he's on the approach. Um, he there may there may even not be any clouds at all uh, at the actual final approach area. This is this is what uh, made the airlines feel a little um, 
uh, how can I say, a, a little frustrated, if you will. And this is the way I felt when I was when I uh, came back to fly here in Brazil a few years ago, uh, because I w- I would uh, go through this experience myself uh, now in 2016, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, I would see a ceiling reported, and, and then I, and I would shoot the approach, and I can I can see the runway, and uh, even though it was uh, way above that ceiling. So the the problem being this is that if you have a ceiling that's reported as say 500 feet, and you can see the runway, it's you you can't shoot that approach, right? Yes. And and there's the there comes the the real crux of the matter here is that. You know, right now, if you're you know outside the final approach fix, and they say it's it's a half a mile visibility, and that's your minimums, you can go ahead and shoot the approach. Uh, if you're inside the final approach fix, of course, you can you know if it goes down to a quarter mile, you can continue. But uh, and that's you know an air operations part, you know 121, et cetera. But one of the interesting things is now that you have the ceiling, you can't even shoot that approach, even though you're in the airplane looking at the runway, saying, "Hey guys, I can see the runway." <laughs> that's really that's frustrating, and and that's that's correct. That's tough. I mean, that, that I can see how you could be so darn frustrated. So mm-hmm. um, now this is frustrating, but you know, okay, so how you know why did this come about? Why did the you made that you were able to institute change uh, in where you are right now? And uh, uh-huh. and get that to change. Oh, and by the way, as far as visibility, you mentioned something real, really quickly. Uh, RVR, uh, uh-huh. and we talked about visibilities. For those that don't know, that's a runway visual range, and they use what's called transmissometers that actually, you know, they can actually visually uh, through a, a mechanical device, an electronic device, to uh, figure out what the excuse me what the visibility is. Uh, and these transmissometers actually are used in lighthouses when they turn on the the fog horns. Uh, a lot of those uh, same type of devices are used there so one of the things that's really important is that we understand though in the u.s right now this is the way they're doing it but you ran into this problem and it was a real problem for who you were working for so so kind of go let's Mm -hmm. go back to that again why Mm -hmm. why the issue give us a little background there sure um basically we we reached a point where um well actually let me take a step back um we have these um regular meetings with the aviation authorities and uh, the other major airlines to discuss common problems and uh, implementations to prioritize infrastructure and things like that. And I was invited to, uh, to represent uh, my airline at, at, uh, at these meetings. And in one occasion, I was uh, given a, a list of uh, diversions and cancellations uh, that uh, had happened during the uh, winter season. Of course, the winter season here is uh, basically right now. <laughs> uh, we're sort of towards the end of it, and um, and when I look at that list, uh, I check the weather at uh, all of those locations. Uh, uh, let's say there were twelve uh, um, occurrences, and out of the twelve, eleven were because of low ceilings. Wow. And uh, yes, and only one because of visibility. So the ones that were uh, caused by low ceilings actually triggered this uh, uh, experience in, that, that, that I had gone through myself. Uh, basically, when I moved to the United States in 1999, um, I had to learn to fly IFR in the US, ignoring the ceiling, or there were no ceiling requirements in the charts. 
so in the beginning it would be funny because I would I would talk to my uh, uh, instructor initially there and say yes so what about the ceiling and he would look at me and think what what ceiling what are you talking about <laughs> and and I would explain to him how it was in Brazil and he was like well we don't we don't have a ceiling requirement it's only visibility and that visibility is good so we can shoot the approach oh all right and when I moved back here uh, in 2011 then I, I went to the uh, to the opposite uh, uh, you know, experience of um, having to learn to fly IFR using uh, minimum ceilings again. So this 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 is um, having gone through this experience is probably what uh, made me react to when I saw that list uh, in a weird way. And I and, and I talked to uh, um, our executives and I said, uh, well, here's what a Here's what I'm thinking about proposing. I'm, propo I'm thinking about proposing that we uh, basically eliminate the minimum seating requirements. And they sort of look at me uh, in a strange way because uh, they're used to, you know, they've always flown like that here. And um, but uh, many of them uh, still fly internationally today, and and they they see this, but they for some reason it just never, I guess it just never registered with them, the fact that they were doing this slightly differently when they flew to the U.S. or to Europe or even some of the surrounding countries here. And uh, so they agreed, and that's that's what I proposed. Uh, and, of course, I'm oversimplifying things a little bit. I had to go do some research and, um, and uh, explain to the authorities how uh, most of the developed uh, countries in the world were doing were doing it. And uh, when I was doing that research, I found a document <clears throat> on the uh, FAA um, website, I think it's called the 71. Let me see, 7110, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. That it uh, that actually tells uh, the story of how this uh, of this change came about, and uh, it was actually FAA Order 8900.1. Um, it, it tells the story there. Uh, of of uh, when they made this change, it was in 1966. Interesting. Yeah, you, you know it, it's it's if you don't mind, I could read it real quick. It's just a couple sentences, um, mm -hmm. but in that in that document, and and you have this in an article you wrote. It says often yes. the ceiling and visibility observations were taken several miles from the approach end of the runway, and as a result, mm -hmm. were frequently not representative of the scene conditions encountered during the final stages of an approach and landing especially in rapidly changing or marginal weather conditions. So that's actually what that, and it's interesting. It's like, gosh, you know, mm -hmm. you, you think about it, it's like, well, God, how could that be? And, and, and now you start thinking about it. Yes, they're right. Uh, so that, that is a good explanation. We'll have a link to that, by the way, the FAA. Dot. Exactly. And the, and the problem is that uh, somehow this um, uh, explanation, or this, this technical explanation didn't exactly uh, get translated to most of the rest of the world, so much so that uh, I think the ICAO only uh, started to reflect this change about 10 years later. Uh, and that's when most of the rest of the world uh, adopted the same the same um, standard. Well, most and of the rest of the world, yeah. Most of the rest of the world, <laughs> that's correct. <laughs> Some countries kind of stayed behind. Brazil uh, was one of them. Right. They didn't quite understand what this change was about, so they adopted something that I called a, a mixed mode, 
where they still had a minimum ceiling, but they also adopted the uh, MDA and RDA, which was kind of weird. <laughs> because if you have that minimum ceiling, that obviously you don't even need a DA or an MDA because you will always see the runway. Right. Wow, fascinating. So yeah. what type of impact, uh, just, just trying to figure this out, I know you said, uh, was it uh, at 11, there was one that was, uh, or 11 of them, uh, one out of 11 were okay to come in because of the visibility, otherwise they had to go mm -hmm. around because of the ceiling. They all would exactly. have gotten in probably. Now, this, this kind of impact, we're talking monetary impact on airlines. I wonder if yes. anybody did any studies as far as that type of impact it had on them and the air transport we're system. Yeah, we're we're going through the pro through that process now. I still don't don't have those results, but I I'm, I am sure curious to see them. Interesting. Wow. <laughs> I'm sure it, it's had a big impact. The uh, uh, IATA was uh, represented uh, in some of those meetings, and they were of course the first ones to jump on board when we uh, when we brought the idea. Fascinating. So now. What what is and when is this changing? I guess I should ask that is because uh, this is fairly new. This new ceiling requirement. Yes. Well, uh, we we presented this idea about a year ago, and it uh, just came uh, into effect in June the twentieth. Oh wow! So beginning June the twentieth, yes, uh, the, there are no more ceiling requirements. A funny story is that also because of uh, this change, um, the way this change happened using, a, I guess it would be a, the equivalent of a, an advisory circular, um, it, which, is, which means it's not a no TAM. Mm -hmm. It's a little harder for the uh, airlines um, abroad, the airlines that are not uh, Brazilian, to uh, to learn about this change because they only usually they only look at no tamps and um, uh, during the first few days we had uh, we had a few problems in one of our major international airports uh, where the ceiling was uh, below the minimum what would be the minimums uh, just a few days before and um, some of the international airlines actually refusing to shoot those approaches because it says it says so on the on their charts quite okay. big ceiling required right? right so so uh we learned that they they didn't exactly know about this change and uh, one of the things i did was actually write this article on on linkedin and uh and it's interesting to see that it was read pretty much all over the world um by many of the same airlines that we see flying here and uh um, pens ops uh, specialists and people like that. So, uh, so it became a little more well known. And obviously, we also what we also did is we uh, inquired our um, navigation uh, providers, and they issued uh, these international alerts, which also helped to just uh, spread the message. So I think now most of the most of the world is aware of it. Interesting, interesting. So one of the things that. I would think is here you are, you learned of this and you learned of the advantages of having just the visibility. I, I guess most people would think, wow, this is a, this is a large mountain. I must scale to be able to change the approach minimums. Uh, what was it? What were your, what were you feeling at the time? I mean, it must've been a daunting task or, or was it like, <laughs> gosh, what were you have? Did you have any doubts in your mind? I mean, what, what was going through your head when you first started this whole process? 
<laughs> well, I, I did think it was uh, it was going to be a very a very hard mountain to climb, um, but it turned out that uh, when you show the facts of you know how the developed world is doing this, and um, how 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 to reason, let's say in the new in the new mode, um, the um, the uh, the logic becomes self-explanatory. Um, initially, we had we had reactions from some old timers uh, that will say, "Well, well th- isn't this more risky?" And uh, and obviously the response is, "Well, this is how it's being done in uh, Europe and the U.S." And this will typically end the argument because you know the U.S. aviation is about ten times larger than uh, our aviation here. Um, you know, uh, in terms of statistics, uh, number of air, uh, aircraft flying, number of uh, uh, flights uh, in the air at the same time, and, and, and all the other figures is pretty much about 10 times as large as, uh, as our aviation here. Um, that's that's uh, how I, I try to always uh, respond to, uh, to this type of questioning. So if you go to the technicalities, uh, the, everything becomes a little more complex to explain. You know, uh, yes, it may sound a little more risky, but uh, on the other hand, um, you're you're using a mechanism to protect yourself uh, in the form of the minimum descent altitude and the uh, decision altitudes. Uh, these are your protections because they are designed using a certain criteria, using a degree angle, typically. Um, and the visibility, but when you go into these technical arguments, it's usually a little more challenging than than by simply stating, "Hey, this is this is uh, how the smart smart guys are doing it." So, right, interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, Arnold, I have a, I have a question about the and, sure. and we'll see. I don't know how much you know about this or not. Um, in Brazil, uh, you talked about the. You know the fact that the the ceiling requirements are still showing up on the charts, and they will be for some time, and that's causing a little bit of notification and communication issue there. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. in the U.S., we have regular publication cycles, twenty eight and fifty six days, and if mm-hmm. we had a big change like this, it it would take quite some time, obviously, to go through and, and remove the uh, something like that from every single approach procedure. Um, mm-hmm. What's do you know what kind of the plan is down there in Brazil? How long they estimate this will take? What's the publication yes. schedule? That kind of thing. Yes, uh-huh. they they go through the same cycle, I believe. They uh, they call it the ARX ARX cycle, if I'm not mistaken, and um, and uh, because of the way the uh, chart uh, review process uh, works here in Brazil, they will they will start changing the charts themselves uh, in January 2018. So we're still about, uh, let's say, four or five months away. Um, well, I think that's actually not, not bad. <laughs> Any idea how long you, they expect the whole process will take? I, I don't know that. Um, I know that uh, it, they're going to be uh, changed as they go through the review process, but it's probably going only going to be a couple of airports per month or so. So it's probably going to be a while. I, sure. I would guess uh, probably more than a year. Hmm. I'm assuming it's going to be those airports that are impacted the most and, and go from there, if that, that would seem logical. Th- they're probably going to be the first ones, yeah. 
Interesting. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting, like, like Russ was saying, this process of changing everything. And, and, you know, I know what you were saying there was really interesting. I was listening, gosh, you know, we, we look and say, oh, isn't this, this more dangerous, et cetera. It's a, and then you look at, at the results from other countries like the United States, Europe, and it's working fine. And that's great. Exactly. But, you know, one of the things I think that's really cool about what you've done is, and, and this is getting some feet, which I think is awesome. And thank God for the internet and and things like you said with LinkedIn sure. that people are starting to read these and from other countries and and saying, gosh, you know this this could work here. So has anybody reached out to you uh, in throughout the the world and said, hey, you know, we'd love to do this in our country. Can we get your help and your assistance? Um, no, not not directly like that. Um, I. I did receive a few comments on on the article itself, and uh, some people wrote to me in private saying, you know, that more countries should do that. Um, but uh, no, I wasn't asked for for direct help by any of them. Because that would be a that would be a much larger battle, and obviously that's another country that you know, you 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 you'd love to help out. I know, and and you I, wanna, I would because <laughs> we've talked about this before, and it, and it's really something that would help some of these other developing nations in in their air transport system, both in costs, you know, and in the ability to have a more vibrant air transportation system, we could have exactly. get rid of this. And and you wouldn't have all these issues with people going around or not even not even leaving, you know, for the airport and just staying put and canceling flights because of this requirement here. Uh, I'm I'm really would it's it would be so fascinating to see the numbers that come out as far as the impact financially on exactly. the airlines and on the people just traveling. You know, people going to see their families and, and their flights are canceled, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, you know, that's an issue. Uh, and I really... Yeah, that's the, the expected <laughs> benefit is exactly that. I'm sorry to interrupt you there. But it, it, the, the, the major benefit is, is that you're basically uh, creating more flexibility in, in the entire um, airspace system. You know, you're allowing uh, more flexible access to all the airports. So it should have a direct impact on... Uh, and airport closings and things like that. I'm really curious to see what uh, the end of the winter uh, statistics are going to show. <laughs> you know, a, a little more something a little more technical. I I know you mentioned there was the ceiling requirement, but mm-hmm. has there's always been has there been a decision altitude and an MDA on those charts with the ceiling requirement on top of that? Or is yes the, uh-huh. okay all right. So you have all that together. And uh, for someone like myself, and, and I'm like I said, I'm trying to wrap my head around this, is that mm-hmm. it just seems so redundant. And uh, yeah, I guess it's amazing that it took so long for people to recognize that. Um, but I guess in your case, it, it was because of the, the a monetary reason. It's like, hey, we're going around. Why are we going around? Why are we landing when <laughs> the, you can see the airport? And uh, hey, now, Carl? Yes, sir. Hey, you brought up a, actually a good point. I wanted to butt in here a little bit. Um, so. So you, so there was a ceiling requirement as well as the MDA or DA and a visibility. Was there a visibility on there too or not? Just the yes, there was yes. also. So so you had to have the ceiling to begin the approach. If I'm reading this right, but then mm-hmm. you would also descend to your MDA DA. Mm-hmm. Have to have the visibility to go in and land. But if you didn't have the airport in sight at the MDA or DA, then you had to go missed, right? That's correct. So kind of, it's like three, okay, three steps. Just want to make sure I had that. Yeah. Especially for yeah. our listeners. And the funny, 
Yes, and the funny thing, Russ, is is uh, is that pilots in Brazil uh, up until this point they were only used to going around for uh, for weather mostly on the simulator, because uh, in 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 real life they will because you could only shoot the approach when you had the visibility and you had that minimum ceiling. You would always see the runway when you reach that MDA. So so it was kind of funny. We never. Uh, you never went missed. Because, yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> you would go missed for other reasons, you know, like uh, something happened on the runway or something, but not because of weather. But, did, but I thought that did you do you have also like the category two and category three approaches too? Did you have those in the past? We we do yes. Okay, so mm-hmm. but that wouldn't be ceiling specific, right? So. <clears throat> that no, would they, the, they would also have a, a minimum ceiling. Really? Wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, I could see this Basic. is this is this is a tough situation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, cat two minimums, for instance, would be a hundred foot ceilings, and you know, the, uh, required visibility, and so on and so forth. And the, and then the DA in that case would be around a hundred feet. Wow. So a, a zero yeah. zero auto land would never happen. <laughs> exactly. Until now, of course. Now that that's going to mm-hmm. change. Andrew, wow, this is this is yeah. this is exciting. <laughs> this is great. It is. <laughs> I got the other. I got an email from uh, one of our pilots saying, "Hey, I used the new uh, the new minimums the other day because the we had a vertical visibility of 100 in this uh, airport." And <laughs> and I said, "And what was the visibility? Well, it was uh, 1,200 meters or something, you know, which is about uh, uh, three quarters of a mile." And uh, and I said, great, <laughs> and that's the idea. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. It, it, it's just it, it's so neat to hear when when people institute change, and it's a real positive change, and it's helping out. And, and Arnold, I mean, we everybody in the aviation community really appreciates what what you've done here, and um, mm-hmm. and really, it, it, it's it's cool that you're getting the word out. And that's one of the reasons we really wanted to have you on, because like I said, mm-hmm. we have listeners from all over, and I would love. For those people to I know. get out there and think, hey, you know, this is something maybe we can represent or present to our our country and uh, and to our folks, and and also exactly. it, it also is great because you've taken us down a path of our history here in in the U.S. and U.S. aviation as to you know why they institute this change. Not that we've ever seen that change because we're going back to the '60s, but you know, there's some mm-hmm. people here that that may have and some listeners that have. Um, absolutely, absolutely, that's probably true. <laughs> yeah, I'd be curious to hear from them uh, how how it was way in a way back when. Yeah, and you know, uh, for you listening, it's if you could just write us if you've ever seen this in the past in the U.S. That's that'd be fascinating. I know there's we have some yeah. some people a little more senior that were flying in the '60s. I was flying in the '60s, but uh, I was a little baby in the back, so <laughs> I didn't really care so much about the the, the minimums as far as uh, except for the meals that were coming around, and which those have gone by the wayside too in, in aviation. Yeah. Well, the uh, so are you going to be coming back to the U.S. sometime, and maybe we could uh, even have you on uh, again over here and uh, meet up sometime. Yeah, sure, sure. I'd love to. Um, Is that yeah? I may come and visit uh, later this year. Awesome. I'll be uh, yeah. It'll be awesome to see you. Cool, cool. Have, now, do you get, ever get out to some of the aviation events in the U.S. other than uh, airline specific? Uh, every now and then, yeah. Every now and then, I go to uh, you know Sun and Fun, and uh, oh. I have never, as incredible as that may sound, I have never been to Oshkosh. I was uh, 
listening to you guys talking about Oshpice. It's okay, uh, neither is Carl. Oh, ouch. <laughs> ouch, that hurt. Ooh, get cold in here all of a sudden. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Maybe you could meet up together, you know? <laughs> yeah, he's he gets to go to the really good show on Sun and Fun. We'll definitely meet up next time when you're at Sun and Fun, that's for sure. <laughs> But uh, well, you you yeah. got a place to stay, that's for sure. And uh, you know, we'd, Thank we'd you. love to have you over here. And what's you know, one of the things I'd, I'd love to know. Just you've done all this so far. You know, what, what's what's next? I mean, as far as I know, you, you're impacting some other people in other countries, and uh, just just through your article and uh, et cetera. But but how about you? I mean, you're you're in a career as an airline pilot. You have uh, you're in flight operations. You train. You you get to fly this really cool Embraer 190, 195 jet. So so where do we go from here? Well, um, I continue to do uh, uh, changes as much as I can. Uh, we, we I discovered another thing that uh, we could have an impact, and this is on the what is called a minimum um, FIR. Um, IFR flight level. Okay. It's 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 a lot harder to to say that than <laughs> than to actually understand it. Uh, Brazil is divided in five um, major uh, FIRs, uh, flight information flight. regions. Mm-hmm. Uh, each of these regions is, uh, of course, um, uh, controlled by an ARTCC facility. Uh, in other words, we have five centers, and uh, each of them has a minimum. IFR altitude that's based on the highest obstacle inside that entire region. Uh, so we have these blanket minimum altitudes. Um, and uh, this is also something that we are suggesting that, uh, that be removed. It's caused, um, uh, it, it, this was something that they instituted back in the 1970s, uh, from what I understood, uh, because there were, there were no reliable um, uh, topographical information back then to uh, put on the charts literally. Uh, of course, this is no longer the case uh, in 2017. So it's also something that we're we're uh, trying to change and remove that and uh, let it be as it is uh, <clears throat> pretty much everywhere else in the world where you can descend to, uh, you can calculate this minimum altitude yourself looking at the chart. Um, the, the way this impacts uh, our airline is that we fly to some airports that only operate VFR, uh, which means basically I have to transition from uh, flying IFR in the flight levels uh, into a VFR traffic pattern somehow. Um, and this is also going to have a, a large impact, I think, in uh, at least in the number of times we reach these airports. That's fascinating, and, and you know the uh, FARs, and we could go into that in a whole other discussion as far as the different boundaries and the different airspace. Uh, I think a lot of us that you know don't realize there are all these different fur boundaries. Usually, we're when we're looking at those, uh, we call them fur boundaries. I know that uh, okay. it's just uh, the FARs, and there's usually a uh, some type of a consequence or some type of a communication minimum that we need to have when we cross these boundaries. Uh, that's usually mm-hmm. what we're talking about, and that's you know you know your vertical boundaries, and uh, you know say you're going across I don't know say Havana or you're going to Senamer, uh, so that would be you right Senamer. Uh, oh wait, you're on the other side. So what would that be? <laughs> Gosh, now now I'm getting confused. It's all right. You're, I'm I guess. <laughs> that's the that's the west side of the country. <laughs> so they 
that type of those reach of those regions has a different minimum, uh, and that's what you're talking about altitude, and it's pretty yes. high. I guess uh, I never really yes. looked at those. And, and what type of numbers are you talking about? Like, is it two thousand feet, or is it really high? <laughs> yeah, I wish. No, they're really high. So, for instance, the Amazonica, which is uh, which is uh, a very good example. Amazonica is the name of the fur. Uh, it's probably the largest fur I think uh, that we have. It covers the entire Amazon uh, basin, and. Um, and the highest peak is literally at the boundary with Venezuela. I think it's about 11,000 uh, feet high. And uh, this defines the entire fur, which is mostly flat, about uh, 500 feet above sea level. And it's mostly flat. The entire region is flat. But you're limited to uh, what we call flight level 110 <laughs> because of this very tall mountain in the border of Venezuela, which isn't... Not even, uh, uh, for all intents and purposes, it's not even inside Brazil. Um, and uh, the way this limits uh, our flying into some of these VFR-only airports is that, you know, I'm, I'm uh, up there at flight level 350 and I'm descending to this uh, VFR-only airport and there's a cloud layer, let's say, at 8,000 feet. And uh, we, we don't have the uh, VFR on top uh, concept here in Brazil, so... If I have a cloud layer below me, um, um, uh, IMC, and so I'll, I'll be limited to descending to the minimum uh, fur altitude, which is uh, in this case flight level one one zero. And uh, if there's a cloud layer below me, I, I have to divert. It's as simple as that. And you know, I think a lot of people listening right now are saying, "Well, that's similar to when I fly to an airport that's just VFR. You know, I have to be able to descend from the in route structure down." But but we're talking a huge difference in altitudes yes. here. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. even even in the U.S., operators are are limited by that, depending on in even Part 121, depending on uh, the limitations on their navigational systems, where they have to actually descend VFR from you know from the in route structure. And that mm -hmm. can be really limiting. You're you're not talking like a 2,000, 3,000 foot ceiling, which is normally the case uh, with the airlines here. We're talking 11,000 feet. You're going nowhere. That's correct. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Unless you have a lot of gas and you can fly at 6,000 feet underneath, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but that's a whole exactly. different type of flying. <laughs> wow. Fascinating. Yes. Well, that's something I'd love to hear more about once uh, you, know, you get into the development stages of that and doing more research. Sure, sure. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, we're actually coming up on, on a time constraint here. Uh, but just really, really interesting uh, what you've done with this and um, and also, you know, what you've done in your flying. And you said you've flown in the U.S. And uh, have you done much general aviation flying in the U.S.? I, I think I may have asked that, maybe not. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, pretty much all of the uh, flying I've done in the U.S. was uh, general aviation. I flew uh, in uh, most of the Western states, I guess, all of them uh, with my... Uh, uh, wife back then, we pretty much camped uh, beneath the wing on uh, you know very romantic style cool. of flying, <laughs> awesome all over the western states, uh, the desert, which I'm fascinated about, and then uh, also uh, when I lived in Northern California and in Northern uh, Florida for a few years, I uh, also done a lot of uh, local flying there and been to uh, um, do they still have a place called Hijackers. Uh, in the Flagler, I think. Mm -hmm. Interesting. It's close to you there. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, I actually haven't been there. Oh, yeah? Mm -mm, not yet. But I will go now that you look it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
and I'm I'm right but, here. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Close to you there. No, but I uh, I, I love my uh, my flying in the U.S. It was uh, it's fascinating. Um, I think there's no place like uh, like the United States uh, if you're into you know recreational flying. Yeah. It's just amazing. It is, and hopefully that'll stay the same. I know we're having a big debate right now as far as our airspace system is concerned, and that's uh, something who who knows we'll have another discussion uh, and another podcast about. But it's kind of it's really cool to hear your perspective on this, and and also just everything else here. I mean, this we I, we've all learned a lot about different things, pans ops, and and this minimum as far as a ceiling minimum that we're, we're not used to here as instrument flyers in the United States. Uh, but uh, well, you've brought a lot of knowledge to us, and you're also bringing knowledge to the to the rest of the world. And I think of uh, what you're doing at the, the flight information regions and, and also the, the minimum altitudes, I think that's going to be a big change too. So we definitely want to mm-hmm. hear an update in the future about that. And we also really appreciate ha- having you on. And uh, if people have questions, of course, they can contact us. And if you don't mind, I could forward those to you. Of course, no, it will be a pleasure. Awesome, awesome. I'll be glad to answer them. Well, terrific. It's been a great pleasure to be here. Uh, thanks for having invited me, Carl. Yeah, awesome. And uh, thank you. I mean, uh, and, and the rest of our co-hosts here, thanks for, for coming on having this, this interesting conversation. And uh, I think that uh, it's it's nice to stretch the boundaries. I hope you've enjoyed listening right now uh, to this podcast and, and getting really into the weeds technically, but also uh, you know realizing uh, we're making a real big impact by doing this. And uh, please tell your friends and, and pass this along to your, to your airline buddies and, and see what they think. I think that's it's a fascinating uh, to see what other folks do in other countries, especially with both, both with their IFR and their general aviation flying. Well, folks, we really appreciate your listening this evening. And uh, from myself and Rick and Russ and Tom and Larry and, of course, Arnold, thanks for listening. We will talk to you next episode. Safe flying. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production.